You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, before we begin, I wanted to give you a hot tip of a great book I just read called The War of Art. Terrific book by Stephen Pressfield about overcoming resistance and getting down to your business, which is the business of art. One of Stephen's key points in his book was how you should become a quote-unquote pro, the difference between an amateur and a pro, and all about the attitude of the professional. And it made me think of our own site, The Producer's Perspective Pro, which we just revamped. We're in our third year. Version 3.0 is out now. Check it out at theproducersperspectivepro.com and make sure you read The War of Art. Now, on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendabinport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. I am Ken Davenport. Thanks so much for joining me today. You know, we've had a whole bunch of new listeners in the past several weeks, so welcome to all of you. And if you are new to tuning into the podcast, you've done so just in time because we have a fantastic guest today. Please welcome to the podcast the Tony Award winning director, Mr. Doug Hughes. Welcome, Doug. Good morning. It's great to see you, Ken. So Doug is currently represented on Broadway by Junk up at Lincoln Center. And directed last year's Lot of the Father at MTC, and a ton more. He's got a very long IBDB page, so check it out. Including one of the longest-running plays on Broadway in the last 20 years or so, Doubt, which got him that Tony Award. So, Doug, I've done a little research on you, and compared you to a lot of the other directors we've had on the podcast, most of which got 
or started college getting a theater degree. Yeah. I hear that that's not the path that you started on. No, I guess it's important for me to confess that I grew up around the theater. Both my parents were actors. My father was a Tony Award-winning actor. My mother was a Tony-nominated actress. And I guess I did everything I could to kind of flee the theater. And uh, I went to Harvard College, and while there I was a biology major uh, for most of my time there. And um, working in the theater was an extracurricular thing there, and I got sort of sucked into it uh, by uh, feeling a need for a little band of us who uh, produced plays written by students. And uh, because nobody wanted to direct these things, it fell to me to do it, and I found I really enjoyed it. So I found another way into uh, to the family business. So you literally rebelled against your parents and were on your way to becoming a doctor. Uh, yeah, well, I was... I, I was flirting bizarrely with the idea of research, and uh, I think the best thing I ever did for uh, biology was uh, go into the theater. Well, I'd argue that there's a lot of research in what you do now. Well, I don't, you know, I do think that, that you're right about that. There's That's certainly one of the joys of the job. I really love immersion in the world of the productions I'm going to do, and I often travel in by way of preparation, and I certainly hit the books when I do it and interview people and all that uh, sort of thing. And also, every show is kind of a looking at life in a drop of pond water. You're looking at an organism, and you're uh, trying to be observant and share observation and, and frame it so that uh, an audience can understand it. I mean, one thing I, I always loved is that uh, the, the, the little platform on which you put your slide in the lab in the microscope is called the stage of the microscope. And I use that for some tenuous connection between uh, my training and uh, in my profession. I've talked to a lot of directors about their research process, and actually you just said something that I haven't heard many times before, which is you interview people. Yeah. Tell me what that means. So how, who do you interview when you're researching a, a new play? Well, I mean, I've just done this play, The Junk, and, uh, you know, Ed and I have been working together for about three years, and I read the first draft about three years ago. And at that time, I said one of the great values I can bring to this process is my ignorance of finance, because, you know, I am not, as I think many people, I think I had a level of intimidation about uh, finance, about just what uh, is going on when those numbers roll across the bottom of the screen or at side here at Times Square, where we are at the moment. You know, I had a lot of friends that I went to college with, as you can imagine, who uh, worked in finance, and they led me to other finance, so to speak, to what are sort of foppishly called merchant bankers, corporate lawyers, people who had been doing business in the 80s, and everybody will tell you, everybody wants to tell you how close they were to the world of Michael Milken, this deal, that deal, this brutal litigation, that travesty. People want a part of that, and I think it's because that era was so uh, significant in kind of making the world we live in now. You know, I did, I mean, I love Ireland, and I go have dual citizenship in the Republic of Ireland. And I did a, you know, I've spent a lot of time there, but um, when um, John Shanley and I did play of his called Outside Mullingar years ago, and it's not that long, it's about three or four years. 
years ago. I decided I, I really didn't know the region of Mullingar in County Westmeath, so John Lee Beatty and I went over there and hung around and lived in the environs of the farm that really inspired the play, and it was unbelievably helpful. I did a play years ago called The Grey Zone, which was about the Sonder Commando at Auschwitz, and its author, Tim Blake Nelson, and I um, went to Auschwitz, went to Warsaw, went through Poland, and uh, yeah, there's, I, I believe there was no substitutes so, so profoundly stimulating. I'm always interested in how artists like you evolve their process and their craft over time. So is there anything you're doing now as you research or as you direct that you weren't doing 10 years ago? Anything different in how you approach material? Yeah, I, I think, and, and I've often heard directors say the reverse of what I'm about to say, which is that when I began, I was a little more, and it may have been out of a, out of terror, out of ignorance, I don't know. But I left more to chance as a younger director. I'd see what happened more. And I'm afraid, I mean, this may not speak well of me, but I'm much more, I've grown far more meticulous about actually storyboarding productions and and mapping things out in advance. I like to think that if a better idea comes along, I, you know, I'm happy to roll with it and tear it up. But yeah, I'm, to get on the underground river of a play, I feel I have to prepare for walking into rehearsal the way I would imagine a, uh, a lawyer. Uh, prepares to try a case. I'd say that in my in the early going, I don't know, it, it's a strange thing. In the very, very early going, I don't think I um, may have some bizarre relationship. I find that just preparation is the best way to breed confidence in myself, and therefore I can impart that to the actors, and I think a huge part of my job is endowing the actors with confidence. There's just no substitute for that when you're doing something that feels that risky. So I may over-prepare, and then I try to uh, throw away a lot of what I know, because so often something much more interesting than what I imagine is in front of me. Do you have any mentors when you were coming up, and any pieces of advice or wisdom that you still carry with you today? You know, somebody, I worked for a great part of my uh, education. I'm, I'm always very proud to say I never went to drama school. And I and I think that's, I don't know, I find, I think the theater is not an academic subject. I think academic environments can kind of drain the joy out of the theater. And a lot of great things can happen in, uh, in training programs, of course. But I, um, I don't know, for some reason I resisted it. And I tried to design an apprenticeship of my own, you know, working as an assistant to people. But I must say the, uh, the the most phenomenal uh, part of my uh, evolution was really I was in my, you know, I was at 26, and I got a job working uh, as Dan Sullivan's associate artistic director out of the Seattle Rep. And at that time, you know, I was able to work off-Broadway in New York, you know, and people thought it was a bizarre notion, like I was going to the Yukon, you know, I mean, this was in the 80s, you know. But it, it was a phenomenal opportunity because... It was a beautiful theater, beautiful proscenium house. You could do magnificent productions there. There were marvelous actors who were consecrated to the theater right there. And I could do Ibsen, I could do Shakespeare, 
I could do Kaufman and Hart. I could do Samuel Beckett. I could do so, I could just dive into the repertoire. And it was an amazing, you know, the fact that Dan trusted me to do that was immensely important in my life. And, um, and the thing I loved about Dan was that, and he could come in, you know, as the artistic director, oftentimes are you artistic directors give a slew of, of notes that are impressions of something and not all the time are they, you know, absolutely immediately useful to one. The thing I loved about Dan is that he could come in and take a look at things. I remember I was just terrified about rather lavish production I was doing out there. And and Dan was able to come in and say three things that revealed that it was a good production. But these three things needed to be addressed. That's what you need in those kind of anxious moments before you're about to unveil something. And so that kind of clarity and that kind of editorial mind that was a big deal for me. Speaking of unveiling, do you read reviews? I don't, actually. You know, you've got to get the gist of them, you know, because you're going to walk around in the world. And you know, it might be... Um, but I find that, you know, I don't... I don't... I find them... They can buffet you, you know, and they can uh, throw you so I have trusted my uh, my better half, uh, Kate, uh, gives me a digest of what's going on. And my agent, George Lane, can give me the lay of the land. And so I feel, you know, that I'm not a babe in the woods walking out there. I know what the story is. and uh, But I found that that's, at this stage of the game, you know, I'm going to persist. It's another day. I'm on to the next thing. And when the reviews are great, the greatest, there's not a satisfaction in a great review. There's relief in a great review. That's what, I mean, and relief is not to be underrated. It's nice. That's it, it, just that, huh, okay, you know, for a little while, and it's a very short time, you feel, huh, you know, you know, I'm going to enjoy this cup of coffee and not think about, you know, just kind of let my shoulders come down. And that's that's the most that I get out of a great review. And um, a bad review can put a crimp in your day. And also, if you are rhapsodic about the good opinion you glean from a critic, many have said this, then you must actually take profoundly to heart the bad opinion you you glean from uh, the same man or, or woman. So, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I, I rem you know, you wake up, or you, usually now these days, you're haunted by the specter of an opening night party of the press. And, you know, it's nice. You know when it's fun and you get to experience your relief amongst your colleagues. Great. And sometimes uh, you're obliged to be philosophical. It's nice every now and again not to have to be philosophical. And I've certainly had that pleasure many, many times, you know. But some days you have to be philosophical. So let's back up a few weeks before those reviews are released. How do you come up with your punch list of work to do when a show is in previews? Yeah. Is it based on your own gut, the playwrights? Do you listen to the audience? Oh, I listen intently to an audience. And, I mean, I'm, you know, I often think of my job as I'm a kind of placeholder for the audience. I mean, I sit in relationship to what's going on stage where the audience sits. And I'm, uh, in a way, a member of the audience with certain privileges. I can speak, talk back. 
and say more of this, less of that. We're missing something here. I'm, I know there's something wrong here. May I suggest this? Could we try that? Could we paint it blue? Whatever I get to say. Then, you know, in the uh, current instance, you know, a thousand people join me. And I'm sitting with them, and that is a speaking of a biological experiment. That's a that's a biological experiment, <laughs> and of course I listen to them, and I look at them, listen to the play, and look at the audience. At a certain point, early in previews, you I've, I've got my eyes trained on the stage. But if we bring things under control to the point where I'm not worrying about a transition or new material that's gone in. Then I, I love to look at the audience and the quality of attention, where the laughs are, where the quality of silence is. And I must confess, I'm not one of those guys who, you know, undercover goes into the men's room and listens to what's being said or walks around. I, I that's a I have other again, I send out spies for that. And I I, I listen to what's said to me. You know, Kazan, I think, with regard to the the opinions, just the raft of opinions that comes your, come your way when you've got a show in previews, as you well know. Kazan said something that I, I love, which is, listen to everything, listen to everyone, then do what you want to do. And that doesn't mean defy what you've learned. That doesn't mean, oh, the hell with what you said. It means just what it says. Listen to everyone. Distill that. Because oftentimes people, you offer you prescriptions and say, you've got to do this, you got to do that. And that's the kind of note-giving that, you know, I don't know is terribly useful. But but if you listen carefully, if you distill everything, it's staggeringly valuable what you hear in those, those sessions. I mean, this play, Junk, you know, it's a play about a system. There are 23 actors on stage, and, and there are many, many plates spinning, and every kind of uh, estate in civil society is uh, represented. I mean, there's new businesses, old businesses, the law, there's law enforcement, there's journalism, there's domestic life, there's political life. And, you know, there's an expanse to the play. And so just calibrating the delivery of information and shedding things. I mean, we were, you know, pointing scenes and refining scenes and relocating scenes on the map of the stage, you know, and right up to the time we let go and passed and brought the press in. Very, very exhilarating and very productive days of, of life on a production. Let's talk a little bit about what you think, what subject matter you think makes a great play. You're such an expert in new plays. And, you know, I can't wait to see Junk. I just got my Tony invited in the mail, actually. Oh, and I'm good. Like, oh, good. Because it's a world that, as you said before, I've, I've never been a part of that world, but I'm fascinated by yeah. it. And I feel like you're going to open the doors to a world that I've never been a part of. Oh, I hope so, Ken. And that's... Always what I thought is made, it's like why I think mob movies are, are so yeah. popular or The West Wing was so popular. And Doubt was a bit of a whodunit, if you will. Surely. Did he or didn't he? Are, are there qualities like that? Are there any universal qualities that you look for when you read a play that they yeah. must have? The, uh, what I have two very childish criteria. I mean, very basic criteria. 
the most childish one is when it's over, you know something has happened. And I think you can read a lot of plays where there's texture, there's color, there's mood. The world hasn't changed. Things haven't landed somewhere. The other criteria, and I really do, as was it, is I like plays where you agree with whoever has spoken last. I like plays with argument. I like plays that twist and turn me. I think a great thing in playwriting is when two characters are having an argument or a debate or a contest, and you know when you're reading that play that the author, the playwright, agrees with both of them. And that's what I think the drama is for. It's for the collision of things. You know, what did Jean Renoir say? You know, people have their reasons. They all have our reasons. We all have our reasons. And that's what's so thrilling about junk. It's not condemning one. one faction or another, one idea or another. It's enthralled with all of, like a great scientist, Ed is enthralled with all the components that created this financial universe and it's that, that we're all really living in, even if we don't know it. That finance is running the show. It's running government. It's running, you know, as things grow more privatized, war is privatized, education is privatized prisons are privatized. So that notion of assigning a monetary value that can actually ride up and down on the stock market to all of these functions that we used to believe were holy for the province of government, that's a big, 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 big story. And and people have their reasons, and they speak to those reasons in the play. And junk is a thriller. Junk is... And I guess I, I love thrillers. I love... Cliffhangers. I like strong first act curtains. I love it when the audience gasps. I love it when the audience sighs in recognition. I love it when the audience is frightened. And and junk does all those things to an audience. And I think that's a great achievement because I think people recoil. Many people recoil from a uh, a, a chart of numbers, a uh, a report on the performance of a stock uh, that, you know, a lot of us put money in the stock market and just trust somebody to look after it for us and hope against hope. It really is a bizarre form of magic, of alchemy. And that's the other thing that Junk is so great about. It reveals that this is this is a manufactured world out of something, nothing. If you speak the right language, you can transform the way people uh, think. You can get them to buy into companies that were considered junk companies and you could sell junk bonds in those companies and you could build staggering wealth. You could take the Dow from, you know, 3,000 to whatever it was yesterday, 23,000. And and you can make value and wealth the, the centerpiece of our lives, the, the, the holy of holies, the thing that cannot be questioned. And that's a hell of a story. And, and Ads really found a way, focusing on the origins of all of this in, in the 80s to make it all happen. And, you know, um, and we found a way to do it on stage, two hours and 15 minutes. You've worked both in the commercial setting and, of course, a lot in the nonprofit. What's something that the nonprofit world does very well that you think the commercial world could learn from? 
I mean, I think that there. I mean, I think there are things that the nonprofit world could learn from the commercial world. That was my second. Yeah, question. and I bet we'll I'm, I'm going to work there. Well, one thing I think that the in the uh, I will may I start with the inverted thing is that I think the not for profit world can. I mean, in the commercial world, there's the just the fiendish focus on that project. It's it's going to sink or swim. It's got to be zealously marketed, promoted, and everybody's all in about that play. And, you know, I think perforce the setup of the not-for-profit where there's a season and there's going to be another one after it and there's a tendency to, you know, really the, the institution focuses on the season and the life or death or health of that project can, you know, at times get uh, ignored. Now, I work with some very, very good people, and I, I think that that tendency is counteracted when you're working at the Broadway house of Manhattan Theater Club, or certainly where I'm working now with uh, Andre Bishop, you know. What can the not-for-profit, you know, I think... I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that the, I'm thinking about the, the things that are particular frustrations, probably for you and for me, and working in the commercial theaters where you're... And I don't know that there's a remedy. I think in some ways it's related to the financialization of everything that I was talking about with junk, in that, you know, I'm I'm getting nervous about the fact that the performance of a new play on Broadway under a commercial, strictly commercial management, necessarily must be the personal appearance of a movie star, in, a, in addition to being the uh, debut of a fine new play. And that sets a whole other system in, in motion while you're working on something that is a borning. You know, and I think that can lead to casting mistakes, strange things happening in the chemistry of a company. So, but I don't know what, but that's just a fact of life. And you're when in this marketplace, I mean, it's kind of, and of course, it doesn't always spell bulletproof success for a new play, you know, to have a, a star in it. But I, I do think that that, I mean, had we attempted to do junk, and for a while there was a notion of doing junk on Broadway, but to do it in 12 weeks at the court theater, because you had 12 available weeks for a marquee name, would have been insanity. It would have been artistic insanity. It would have been commercial insanity. And and it was it's marvelous that we're up there for whatever we are, 16 weeks or whatever, in, in probably the best theater in New York for us. We can produce on a staggeringly sophisticated and, I guess I can use the word, epic scale, and somebody's going to write the check for 23 people on stage. And and the con- very configuration of the stage. I mean, it's the closest thing we have in this country to something that feels like a national theater. And this is a play of, of social questions. And, you know, I, I hope it... I hope it breeds in some of the people who come to see it an appetite for plays like that. I mean, I worry about the incredible shrinking American play, which is another economic thing. Like, okay, it's one set, it's four actors. It's no set, it's one actor. Hey, great. You know, but I, I want to see a society on stage. Uh, and and uh, I, I love junk because I think it has the potential, and I think we've real, realized a lot of the potential to, to get an audience interested in the adventure of their own lives. 
that's what this play is like. That segues into my next question. We'll go back to your roots as a biology major. <laughs> Imagine you did go on to become a doctor. Imagine you're giving the American theater a physical. Okay. What would you say about your patient? How is that patient oh doing my today? I worry about the patient. I worry about the patient because I think that way too long ago, the theater became a luxury item. Sometimes when it isn't even a luxury item because there are discounts available or ticket lotteries or giveaways, it, it feels like a luxury and people cut themselves off from the life of the theater because it seems like something other people do or richer people do. The other thing I'm nervous about is, uh, or concerned about is what I guess I'd call the balkanization of theater, that there, there, we, you know, maybe this is happening throughout, across the scope of entertainment, that there is, when, Ar when Arthur Miller wrote a play, he was writing to the whole society. He was, he was writing, and he was writing on Broadway. And a play like Death of a Salesman was aimed at the Brit society. And when Ed Actor is writing junk, that is something he is attempting and I think succeeded in doing. But so much of the, of the experience of the theater in this town, because this town is, you know, like a, you got to say, this is the capital, a world capital of theater, of course, is I'm going to see this thing on 4th Street in a small house, and that's what I like. Or I'm going to see Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly, and that's what I like. And the, the sense that theater is one language with an infinity of dialects, I think gets lost. I mean, people say, this is what I like, this is not what I like. And I, I feel that the industry, if I may, just could be promoting the sense of uh, the theater is a habit across the spectrum as opposed to the theater as, you know, a pick-and-choose catalog of products. Okay, and now my last question, which is my genie question. Uh -oh. Imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you <laughs> and thanks you for giving up biology so many years ago <laughs> and wants to say thank you to your contributions to the American theater by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about the theater and Broadway that makes you angry? We were talking before this podcast began that you're such a nice, genteel man. <laughs> uh, what makes you angry that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? Mm, God, the hell of a question. Especially since I'm just trying to be so accepting and philosophical these days in these uh, uh, dark days in the early 21st century. My goodness, what infuriates. I mean, I know exactly what it's about. You know, something that does infuriate me is and many, many, many will have said the same, is the cost of going to theater. It's when I, good friends of mine who want to come and see my work, a lot of them can't afford it. The theater is filled with indigent, struggling, extremely gifted people who, you know, have to really run a bit of a racket to get to see the work that's going on. And believe me, I understand. I understand, you know, but the cost of a ticket at a subsidized theater is still a luxury item. That is a night out. It is a night out to see junk at a publicly subsidized theater. So at least in those theaters, I feel it is 
something infuriating, and I'm going to talk about the subsidized houses, that there isn't adequate subsidy to make those part of the public discourse. I'm setting aside the commercial theater where the imperatives are very different, but I have in my lifetime seen the cost of ticket at a subsidized house just continue to rise, and I've seen the subsidized theater move ever closer toward the commercial model. And, you know, when I think of growing up in this town in the in the 70s, when I was a kid, and everything I could see for next to nothing at, at the public theater to pick a hand. Yeah, there are, there are breaks, there are things, but it, it is, yeah, that is something that galls me a bit. Especially as I, you know, people say, oh, I'd love to come and see your show, you know. And then I have to remind them. I mean, sometimes I subsidize people coming to see my shows because I want them to see it, and I know it's a hit they can't take. I mean, the, the financial hit. Sometimes it's the show business hit. But yeah, I imagine it galls us all. It's a very interesting point, though, because yes, other people have said the same thing. But what I love about the what you just said was that it's not just that tickets are too expensive. It's that tickets are too expensive for the artists out there who need to see this stuff in order to create more art. The theater survives on artists seeing, viewing art. Yeah. And perhaps there's some way out there that all of us can... Uh, I don't know. If you're a union member, you get a reduced right, reduced price to everything out there. Something to encourage more artists. And there, yeah. there is that, but it, it's 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 not as embracing as it, it could be, and it contributes, I think, to that balkanizing of the theater. Like you know, if it's above 14th Street, I'm not into it. You know, or if it's below 14th Street, I'm not into it, or whatever it might be. That's nuts because. The, the, the animating spirit of what we're all trying to do is similar, uh, regardless of whether we have the label avant-garde slapped on us or the label Broadway slapped on us. Well, thank you so much for that answer, and thank you so much for being here today. Go see Junk Up at Lincoln Center. I'm going in the next couple of weeks, and I cannot wait. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to check out the all-new version of the Producers Perspective Pro version 3.0. We're in our third year. We have a super strong community, and we hope you join it. Check out the ProducersPerspectivePro.com today. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.